You know, when, when talking about Imam Shamil and the, these caucus wars, caucus conflicts, it's really important for us to place the man in his time and place, right? Mm, uh, yeah. So the time is uh, 19th century, early 19th century, and the place is the desert planet of Arrakis. Which is the home to <laughs> the geriatric spice melange. <laughs> Who knew the history could be so colorful? <laughs> Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> Haunted by the horrors of the sandworm, this ginormous creature, this is the size of mountains, right? That will consume everything in its path. It's been known to do that. Right. I didn't realize that so much of the. Uh... That the, the Silk Road trade was threatened by Shai Hulud. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a little little known fact that I don't think is often appreciated. You know, man, man and nature will war as per usual, whether it's an emu or a sandworm. All right, but I think uh, I don't think they talk about the sandworm until like we're we're jumping ahead. Of course, I think we're gonna get that in part two. Yeah. <laughs> uh. All right. Yeah. All right. Welcome to uh, Pleasant Evenings Book Club. Uh, this is the book club portion of the Pleasant Evenings, where I think we're doing a first three-parter. Um, th- that seems to be what what the text is demanding. Yeah. So it's gonna be a three-parter of Sabers of Paradise by Le- Leslie Blanche. Yeah. Now this is a writer I honestly had no idea existed until you introduced her to me. She seems pretty. I, I I enjoy her uh, kind of interpersonal take on history. Yeah, she's very thorough, but like conversational, just in a way that comes from what feels like deep knowledge. Like this is someone who clearly cares a lot about the East. Like maybe there's a I'm gonna say the East because like there is a kind of an Orientalist flavor to a lot of this. But it's a it's a nuanced it's a nuanced one. I mean that, that whole thing unpacks so much, right? Or demands us to, which I guess is what Leslie is trying to do here. I think. Yeah, in a way, is a really great text for our kind of like critical appreciation of I don't know um, the encounter between East and West because we're this is a story of a very brutal I don't know a very brutal like encounter between. Uh, Russia and you know this area, Eastern is- Islamic West uh, mountaineers. Yeah, it's odd. You know, something I was thinking. Like she definitely like calls them Easterners, like calls the people there Oriental, but but like the- this area in in the Caucasus, like Dagestan, which is in now modern day Russia as a sort of independent republic. Um, she makes sure to place them within the context of oh, the Islamic world, but also makes sure to give you a very contrasting view of what life is like in the owls in in the mountains versus in the... Palaces of in, Persia yeah. or 
um, places of the Ottoman Empire, which are better off. Yeah, there's something, and this explains like part of what makes Dagestan or you know the the uh, the Avars, like these Caucasian mountain people, like so exciting. Is there something I'm saying inherently, but I'm you know uh, grain of salt. I'm more talking about the way that people see the see them than I am about who they are intrinsically. But at least, like, in you know, the colonial imagination of these big empires, it's kind of, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but it's kind of, like, it's kind of a frontier for everyone. Like, it's at the end, it's at the very tips of the Russian frontier, like, recent, very recent acquisition, not based on conquest until what we'll get to later, until this 30-year um, occupation plays out. It was something that they won from Persia, who themselves had a very loose grip on this area. It's like these passes are of very strategic importance because of the communication between all these other empires, the whatever, you know, the Mongolian Empire, the the empires in, in Europe, Russia, Persia, Ottoman Empire. But it's kind of at the fringes of everything just because of its re- remoteness. So it maintains this kind of like exoticism, no matter from what perspective you're looking at. Except, of course, from their own. Which is... there's there's this romantic sense of freedom that that could be very much contrasted with this at this point. This uh, great game, right? This <laughs> rather posh and and pretentious um, Versailles inspired court life that a lot of European emperors or empires are trying to push on. Yeah. And she definitely, uh, Leslie Blanche, like, definitely, like, she's leaning into what she admires, what she finds fascinating about it. And she's kind of identifying it in the lives of these uh, courtiers and uh, noblemen. Um, like, I'm glad that we had read, I guess, two things, right? We read v-, v, which is a different kind of uh, outskirts of the Russian Empire, the recently uh, or of the complexly incorporated Ukrainian area of the Russian Empire. Who who do get a moment right in this book, right? And of um, Uncle Vanya, like talking about like this kind of um, anemic, depressed, um, aimless existence that a lot of these noble people have. That when they go out into the Caucasus, they feel rejuvenated and <laughs> like filled with that kind of romance. Like one of the first things that um, Leslie Blanche talks about when talking about the area is talking about the sort of uh, resort or um, cities that the noble people, the aristocrat, the the aristocrats in from Russia, from the empire, go to to see like these these fascinating wild men, the imagining being swept away by them, or um, like Pushkin's visits uh, to what's this what's this place called Kazava, whatever. <laughs> I'm not gonna get these names. It's gonna be a lot of like, nah. Remember what's this called? <laughs> yeah. Kaz Kaza Kaz Khan or something. Like yeah, that. something. Like that. <laughs> I mean, even even uh, Lev Tol- Tolstoy yeah. made, made his way over here for a time as as a means of escape. Um, we, yeah, she mentions writers like Tolstoy, Pushkin, Gogol. Even when when I was reading the book, I was like, I'm going to be so smart for breaking up Gogol, and then of course she brings it up. <laughs> I was talking about the frontier thing. And and then she happens to bring up how the the outposts 
set up by the Cossacks resembled the outposts in the American frontier. I was like, ah, that was going to be my other thing, the comparison to the Westerns. And she just, of course, she sees it all. She's incredibly well. No, I mean, she's insightful. She's at it. Yeah. She does a pretty decent job of remaining unfairly unbiased as well. I think like most of her sources were, um, were from Russian dispatches. Like she quotes like any, like any like literary figure that touches it, touches this area, including it's on in my, it's on my little cheat sheet here. Oh wait, no, yeah, I do have them here. Griboyadov. Who wrote some kind of like satire of the t- like anyone who get has who put a pen at least she seems to have like absorbed but because it's mostly Russian sources she does like tackle these sources with a kind of suspicion and sarcasm sometimes yeah I, I think she did have the opportunity to like interview the descendants of yeah Shamil or Haji Murat mm-hmm Right, and she was able to like double check that against uh, memoirs that were written. Yeah, yeah, I, I recall it as a methodology, which is great. I'm remembering some sections where she talks about how silly it was the way that the writers would talk about the ideal man and the ideal woman, especially when it comes to like gender relations. She seems a lot more critical, but then she'll have, and I guess it's for her literary goals. Because it's not quite like we we're saying before, like we we're saying, like it's not quite a history book. Um, she's trying to tell a story and immerse you in a world. I got so taken aback when she was writing about the Persian court, and she's talking about how the Oriental, in scare quote, the Oriental will admire jewels like all day long, like like that's their pastime is just to look at a shiny thing, and there's just something about their constitution that is drawn to that to to jewelry. <laughs> But I wonder if it's with a kind of irony, because she also says that, like... Well, she, she mentions the, the Americans and, and their cars. <laughs> yeah. Like, they like their jewels, just like British people love their pets, and Americans love their cars. Yeah, that's what British people love, their, their pets. So everyone gets a little bit of that uh, treatment. She talks about how extreme the Russians were. There's some kind of eye-rolling stuff about how the Russians are a mix between whatever like western diligence and eastern despotism yeah which is how i say it i guess it kind of takes apart this entire east east versus west divide because a lot of these other european powers <laughs> views russia in, in this unfavorable light for being asiatic yeah like yeah, there's always like this kind of like you're not really one of us, but you happen to be so strong that we let you play at the at the table like at the table with us. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It does kind of and and like the the way that these these narratives like they're not you know like I'm I'm talking about them like oh eye rolling or whatever and there's you know there's reality that this comes out of and then and I'm getting this I'm pulling this from the little bit of Edward Said's Orientalism that I read. There's a reality that it comes from, and then there's just the the other side of it, and that these narratives then influence reality and like impose a kind of understanding that has real life effects. isn't just isn't just an illusion on top, but is a kind of co- ongoing conversation with with reality. Well said. Yeah, it's still <laughs> yeah. My only my only bits of insight is going to be when I remember what someone smarter than me said. 
It actually, do do check out do check out Orientalism from uh, Saeed. Yeah, maybe we'll see if we do it for for an episode. Although, like, I'm already nervous enough doing this this book, like doing straight up just like a text. I'm gonna be so afraid of like misrepresenting these points of views and stuff. No, you you wouldn't be re- misrepresenting. We'd be giving our take on just, it. That's right. Yeah, our honest our honest reaction and. Yeah, that's the point of this stuff. Like, I know I'm going to get the details wrong. Like, I wasn't entirely sure what made Hamzat Beg, like, such a bad guy. And so I guess, like, when he, like, took the throne and got comfortable, it showed that he wasn't as into the Murid spirit as the rest of them. I know that he was kind of weaselly before he came on, but he he took a significant... He got a significant win for... I don't know. Well, so... so I think he, he... Well, so he was willing to be loyal to Russia... Oh, before he became imam, right? Yeah, he, he was yeah. convinced to join the, the Murids as, as a way of revenge. Cause, yeah, because he wanted revenge against the Queen of Avaria. Yeah, yep. For some reason, <laughs> dense tangle of of uh, grudges. Right, right. I, I mean, and, and grudges in this region are full-on generational blood feuds. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to this source... Would, would wipe out entire families. It could be over some of the smallest, I don't know about smallest, but, you know, over, over issues of honor. Yeah. Which led to some of the, like, I'm just gonna, I'm, whenever, any opportunity to point out the more colorful details. Apparently, it could get so bad, the loss of progeny, that some villages in this region would have a sort of, sort of social moray where a woman could go out in the street covering their head and anyone passing by could impregnate them without any shame or something like that. Mm-hmm. There must have been other factors at play, if that's the tradition. Or just, just to continue, continue on the family. Well, yeah, yes, that's that's true. Um, but that's a, that's a way to, to be like, and it got so bad, and these people are so passionate and honor-driven. Well, I guess if you're losing a blood feud, you'd want to continue on the bloodline somehow. Not that that would be the motivation for for the widow. Yeah, there's she does she is critical about how a lot of women are sidelined in these Caucasian societies, where it seems like um, Shamil's devotion to his wife makes him different from everyone. So like these women who who go out to get impregnated, then the whole village would raise those children. So it kind of like like erases the woman who's do, who's doing who's doing this in the first place kind of raises her her importance in in this past her reproductive ability right which you, you know it seems to me that Shamil might have been against some of that i think yeah he did he was against like the blood feuds and he cuz like a lot of the this section this first part of the book does so much to set the set the tone establish the the setting but there is there is a, a a decently sized section once Shamil takes power after these successions, and do you think we'll ever get to um, doing this in order, or it's gonna? <laughs> Anyways, no, we 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 can, we can we can get to doing this in 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 an order for sure. Uh, <laughs> I wonder. I will see how it goes. I, I think I think we're t- keeping a decent um, focus at least. Yeah. Like when she, and uh, this is something that, that um, speaking of the literary aspects of the book, 
this is something that even Leslie does. We're we're following in her footsteps. No, I mean that's true. She'll jump around from scenes and and years. I mean, there's not necessarily a historical linearity that she's entertaining. Yeah, and I don't know if it's too soon to hit this tone, but you know, in the spirit, I think like she does it for. I think there's two reasons. Like one is the straightforward thing that she says. She wants to get across a kind of spirit or you know, kind of principle about about these people like something like and she says like and to best understand that it's best to go into a story that happened later so talking about the, the in general about the nature of russian i don't know military like the, the other russian approach to to their their soldiers she, she'll quote a general who said wherever a dog can go a soldier can go and she'll quote that in the beginning and then we'll get to the scene where that guy actually says it right and the story, and I don't know if you want to save it for later, or I don't know, the story where Shamil beats up his mom. Oh, yeah. With, uh, with that's going to happen years from now. <laughs> right. Near, near the full completion of, of his unified Averia, Chechenia, and Dagestan. Yeah, once he's already, like, the established lion of Dagestan, and the rebellion is, like, like in the thick, or, like, right in the middle. Like, I think the story is, like, from 1840s. And the rebellion ended, like, in the 50s. And it started, like, I guess in the 20s, 20s, 30s. God, what a long Catholic three years. Yeah. Do you want to tell a story where he beats... Oh, let me go... (laughs) Oh, so the other reason, I think, so... One is the straightforward thing of, like, sometimes it is, like, the best way to, to communicate the overall spirit instead of just, like, the progression of chronology is to jump around, tell a story from the future that illustrates, you know, something that she's trying to get across. And the other thing is maybe the... And let me know if I'm being crazy. It's the the fatalism that she talks about, too. Oh. Everyone's born to, to live, to fight, to die in whatever way Allah seems to see fit to accept their part. And I think this... And, and you know, it takes on a different thing when it's like, oh, well, could they be victorious? Could they? Like, we know this is a failed rebellion of a kind of people that I don't want to say have been erased. Like, Dagestan is still there. You know, uh, Chechnya is still there. And they're not happy being Russian all the time. I know they've had conflicts in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, same for Georgia. But there is a, a kind of flavor, at least in this book, at least like as far as 1960s is concerned. Um, this feeling of like, this was some, this was like a flame that burned brightly and then was snuffed out too. So you see like all the time, all at once there, which contributes to the fatalism and to the kind of romanticism, the the way that it's a frontier. It's also, uh, you know, as hauntology, bringing back something we've talked about before. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a good, that's a good take for sure. You know, it, it could be that method of writing history could be a nice way of kind of navigating the, the two um, foci that even Muradism has at this point between Shariat, the law, or mm-hmm. Tariqat, the, the path, right? So in exploring these people, you, you have to go down the, these two tensions. Like what they believed and... Yeah. It's really interesting how she how she talks about like we don't get like a you know we don't get exegesis on the Quran or we don't except for like that aspect she doesn't go too deeply into that but she does explain that yeah like the, that that level of 
that hierarchy of understanding and that description of that kind of full devotion. Yeah, there's the there's the kind of general wisdom everyone is taught, and then there's the path that you follow if you're a Morid, which is like I think Morid is like um what is that like a, does that what does that mean like disciple it translates to something like that? Yeah, like like disciple student like initiator um, student, yeah. Initiate is, is a good one. Well, I, I, I recall I recall this quote that's really interesting about like the ultimate re- realization phrase initiate. Whosoever does not acknowledge that it is immaterial whether he is a Muslim or a Christian has not acknowledged the truth and knows not the essence of being. And that cuts through. It's interesting to say Christian or Muslim, right? Because this is also an, what do you call it, an intra-faith uh, fight too because Russia sees itself as as the force that's going to Christianize this area of um, crossover crescents. Right, yeah. Which, which was a rhetorical point. Yeah, these little beautiful ways of saying this. Yeah, in a sense like the, these like the, these religious things are like a, a, like a focus point for for these passions and these spiritually guiding things. But also, yeah, it transcends just those things. Um, like Sufism is is typically a non-violence a non-violent sector whatever you want to call sufism um i meant to read more about islam i didn't i'm sorry (laughs) Um, it's hard to remain pacifist at at, at i guess i'll say i'll say legal you know at at like a legal level when your people are about to be conquered and occupied by this despotic power so it it becomes a choice of of this theocracy one Mm. way I guess theocracy in in another way, right? Right. Is that a theocracy or a theocratically justified? I don't know colonial thing. I'm sure there's. Uh, I'm not smart enough to. <laughs> I kept thinking about the current uh, conflict in with Israel and Palestine as we were reading this. As, oh, like some some kind of take together from it. Yeah, I kept thinking about um, yeah, like Israel is like this like Western colonial effort with some you know obviously like some justification of its existence based on jewish identity but mostly just to satisfy western political ends in the region i mean the, the entire the entire thing makes, makes me so just pessimistic because like you said it's rooted in, in a good thing a good idea of, of a justice for a people that were brutally oppressed but then it gets mixed up in in, in this awful horrible colonialism right but and um and i'll say like okay so like if you think so going back to the russian thing like if you think you know god is king and salvation for all and all that then then it's so good to spread it in but obviously like you know genocide in the classical description of the description of the word is it's trying to erase a way of life not just killing people in the ways that the nazis did but a general erosion of people's ways of living out of the way and then then there's the the ongoing settlement of you know gaza aside the west bank like those those like the the violent imposition of settlements like it's there's something textbook about that if you want your political power to your political organization your to to claim like a certain tract of land like one way to go about it is to little by little like set up settlements kind of like how the cossacks 
were instructed to build settlements as they went into deeper into the Caucasus. Right. Like as I was reading, it's like I was realizing like how how old this playbook is. And like okay, uh, going outside of and we can discuss how much of that we leave in. I don't. <laughs> yeah, going outside of the more of the uh, hot potato that is talking about Israel and Palestine. You know, we just look at the United States and how how they formed or Latin America, which is I guess like a little more complicated. No, well, either way, yeah. Which I, I guess is, you know, my, my issue with Israel. I, I think, you know, Jewish people deserve some sense of, of justice. I don't know about a homeland there, but it's it's marred by this top-down introduction by by force. Yeah, obviously, like, their whatever democracy they might have had in their constitution is heavily... Uh, compromised right now it seems like the right wing there has a huge grip and of course for it sure. does because for sure how do you not get a right wing uh hegemony when when you're trying to do an ethno state right there's only one place where ethno states end up which is ethno state sharia law is a kind of scary though yeah okay going back to this book like i wanna <laughs> I, I wish i could um the shamil shamil is a very um complicated uh protagonist for this for this story because you want to root for his fight for freedom and at the same time he seems to have an iron grip over over this region i mean there, there's some there's some cruel punishments yeah um like if you show any degree of of cowardice you're what like, like a a pelt is sewn onto your back, and no one is allowed to talk to you. Yeah, that sounds like a, that sounds like a description of like how a cult would operate. No, not to simplify it too much. Not to say that this is like a very extreme time where very extreme, uh, where very extreme reaction took place. Right, which is hard because because a, a fight for freedom, I I feel, I feel like has got to be a good fight, right? <laughs> Man, like yeah, those extreme conflicts, like it's it's very difficult to. He says things out. I was like, it's hard to like blame anyone. Oh, I'll blame the British. That's okay. That's that's always fair. I mean, even it's it's weird. Even here, we have like some British characters bouncing around and fucking about. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because Leslie Blanche is British that she eases up, or if this is the case. But it seemed like they're kind of in the background. I think there's something in the introduction about how Shamil would um, send letters to England asking for support. Which he thought would have been something England would be happy to do because of their nervousness about Russian uh, encroachment into into Asia, and specifically into into their colonial holdings in in India, which is so far away. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, it'd be a difficult thing to achieve for Russia. We get a little bit of the Russian flavor. Apparently, Paul the first literally had plans to invade india somehow yeah and it's so funny like talking about like these uh these justifications apparently i saw on the wikipedia his plan was in his words to liberate the indians and they would be so grateful that they would uh ac- happily accept uh being russian protectors <laughs> uh and he, he was gonna share that with napoleon that's pretty funny. <laughs> you know, there's um, there's a conspiracy theory that the British had him assassinated. No, I, no, but that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it, it just seemed like it was barely acceptable. As you know, it was an arrangement of convenience that 
Russia and Britain were not in all that war with each other. Right. That wouldn't happen until the Crimean War, I guess. Like during the Napoleonic Wars, when Russia was uh, flirting with the idea of joining France, things might have gone away. But I guess they had the British were more concerned with Napoleon. And then I guess like once Napoleon was out of the way and then they, they only have, all right, well, what's the chessboard look like now? And Russia's thinking, well, we've been growing at a great rate and I think we can keep this going. <laughs> I think uh, all these smaller countries need to take us seriously, including the Ottomans. Crazy shit. Yeah, because uh, yeah, after after Paul died, then Russia was back in the in the coalition wars against France. Napoleon beat Russia and Prussia. Napoleon was still excited about the idea of friendship with Russia. He made a, a brief alliance with Russia, but I'm not sure how it fell apart. Eventually, of course, Napoleon would invade Russia, lose terribly, and then Russia and England and other coalition members would invade France and kick him out. If being Russia never works out. Yeah, right. But it was... um. Either way, like it was Tsar Alexander who um, oversaw the deposing of Napoleon. When also reintroducing the forays in, into the Caucasus regions. Yeah. And then loses to Tsar Nicholas, and he he's a he's a character, isn't he? <laughs> right. When I finally looked up what he looked like, I was surprised because she talked like Leslie Blanche talked so much about how handsome and like dashing he is i thought he was gonna be hot yeah yeah i was picturing i don't know who's who's hot in an icy kind of way i guess peter the great maybe peter the great is he hot let me look him up i don't know no no not really no this isn't doing it for me he's kind of cute i mean better looking than fucking rather than alexander or sorry (laughs) nicholas even even Paul the First has such a baby face. Yeah, <laughs> I only saw one thing. I was looking up pictures of Nicholas the Second, and he has like a mohawk in one of them. Really? Oh, Nicholas the First. Sorry, Nicholas the Second is later. I mean, I think Nicholas the Second is attractive. He's got that dashing look, right? Yeah, let me look him up. Like, look at the way they talk about Alex. Yeah, no, he's yeah, he's kind of he's. He's kind of got something going for him. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a handlebar mustache. Oh, yeah. I want to uh, get my hands around those. <laughs> <laughs> I want to rev that engine twist. on. What am I saying? I can't, I, I can't improv that. Uh, vroom, vroom, motorcycle handlebars. <laughs> well, Nicholas the I First, I was picturing, honestly, I was picturing like, like Char. Yeah. Like this. Like this kind of like aloof, uh, handsome, super capable. I think, but of course, but Nicholas wasn't about scheming or playing games. No, he was secure enough in right. I guess in where he was, that his whole thing was just avoiding any kind of liberalism and any kind of challenge to central Russian authority. He crushed that de- December protest. Just right. <laughs> There was one little murmur of like, maybe we should have a parliamentary system. And then <laughs> he'd, he'd have none of that after that. Was it Nicholas who undid, what's the word? Who dismantled the, 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 it seemed like a, like a Russian version of the trade of the East India trading company. Like there was a, a company that was trading like Eastern goods with San Francisco. 
Yes. Yeah. He was the one that dismantled it because he was, what, what was the exact quote? There, there, there's no point in having these colonies if I can't like police over them with my direct will. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I guess it's a kind of backlash to that other stuff. I get also following the um, huge upheavals that were the Napoleonic Wars, which was Alexander who was a lot more chill, actually. Stuff, but whatever. The entire dynasty seems rather cursed with the assassination of of Paul, though. Like I, I think it was mentioned that Alexander had a lot of guilt about that. Um, that that might have been why why Alexander was so chill because he knew that if the people in his court didn't like him, he could be next, probably. Right. Not that he was exactly so chill. Oh, yeah, but it, it once that assassination happens, it creates an atmosphere of either I need to be on everyone's good side or I need to create some kind of situation where they all need to be on my good side. Right. Everyone needs to be happy. No, no issues. Yeah. And I keep calling Alexander chill, but of course it was his. He had sent Yermolov into the, into the Caucasus, who was incredibly effective, apparently. And I mean, he was he was brutal because what he he adopted tactics that were, that were ruthless, right? Of, of just destroying yeah. entire villages. And that very cute justification. It's the only way they can understand. You have to be as ruthless as they are. It's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Because Leslie Blanche wonders if if it was that um, brutality that made Avarian whatever uh, Caucasian resistance against russia so white hot like if some colonizing force like you know like borderline crucifies a bunch of your people like kills like raises villages destroys crops like ruth ruthlessly like dismantles like a lot of people's like way of life to establish like a military foothold in your backyard while preaching the religion that is not your religion it seems like a really good way to inspire uh, a theocratic backlash. Yeah, yeah, to to a fatalistic degree, right? Yeah, it is. Who knows, like, what could have stopped it? Who knows what could have made things go a different way? I mean, there, there are so many domino pieces, so many cars falling together, right? As, mm-hmm. as early as Catherine the, the, the Great and, you know, the conquering of Crimea, Crimea. We're not conquering, but this is some conquering. You know, these expansions and these yeah, these expansions <laughs> into Crimea, Georgia, I I mean it, it was I that section where Leslie Blanche quotes uh Pushkin talking about the rate of Russian expansion, how quick it was. It makes it sound like you know like the unstoppable wave of the future, like the, the, the destiny of the Russian people to <laughs> envelop Europe or something. But it was like right. beautifully written. And it's like, it's a, a exhilarating. Not that I think, not that I believe that Russia should have, uh, you know, uh, Lebensraum or whatever. But there, there's, there's some poeticism in how it was put. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to find this quote. I, I read it. I read this book mostly on, uh, on my Kindle. Uh, which is really nice to read, but it's not so responsive to like touch through. I'm not. You don't want to like type and move things around, zoom in, zoom out. Yeah, I've I've long abandoned my Kindle for uh, my phone reading, which also has a Kindle app. Yeah, 
So it's all it's all talking to itself anyways. I've had my Kindle for less than a year, I think. So I'm still kind of on a honeymoon with it. I do like a bigger display. This episode brought to you by Amazon Kindle. <laughs> Buy this product from Amazon. Ethically justifiable thing to do. Yeah, do it for your readings on Sabres of Paradise or <laughs> Frank Herbert's Dune, which is so just oddly um, inspired by this. Besides that, he took the idea of a giant worm devouring mountains. Besides that, he stole that idea straight from the Caucasus campaigns. I mean, he, he took entire quotes <laughs> and just flipped them into his own, which is cool. He, I mean, he, he did it in a really creative way. Yeah, I've still got to read Dune. Is the vibe reading Dune as romantic as as this one is? Like, how um, do the, how do the how does the vibes compare? Yeah, it's it's just as romantic and, and like this future historical framing of things. Oh, like the the narrations, like uh, kind of omniscient. And yeah, I mean, I mean, like total. A, t- sorry. No, 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 go ahead. You're the one who read Dune, so <laughs> shut up. There, there is like this omniscience to it. I mean, omniscience, but there, there's like a historical archaeological vibe to this where, where we're mm. talking about these events of dune and in, in the, the past tense a lot especially in, in how we, we open every every chapter because a certain character is talking about paul atreides and Madib and what his deeds were oh like it's like it's uh i get it like yeah like that kind of like distance of time like these this is history as it played out this is part of the tapestry of where we are now whatever now is right which is really cool from from like a sci-fi mm-hmm. book yeah i guess one thing that's kind of detrimental is is that i think his goals were to be critical of the hero figure mm-hmm. as as though they were a a despot in in the vein of czar nicholas like or chamil right but I don't think he sells that quite as well. Uh, like it still has to. It still ultimately reads as this kind of like power fantasy adventure. Right. I mean. I mean. For for me, Paul and and the Fremen were fighting a good fight, mm. and, and this danger of future jihad felt so distant and far away. I have a feeling that's how this is gonna go for me. I'm gonna cut up like sure. Allah's path is the only way. Like once you once you buy into like that that worldview especially where it comes from in its uh, resistance it's i guess it's a little different because we're talking about humans fighting humans and i've only seen the dune movie but the harkonnens are like they look so evil <laughs> yeah and i mean they're, they're portrayed very evil in the book as well which is may- maybe also detrimental because they are just human too but they're in the but they look all disgusting and everything about them is bugs yeah and <laughs> So like when when you when you portray people like that instead of like and Tolstoy was there too you know right it's it's it, it feels a little less nuanced and complicated than the actual historical events yeah okay so do you want the uh, the the indigenous desert people defending their homeland or the army of Voldemort's right and everyone's going to choose the. <laughs> The desert people. Yeah, I'm not gonna both sides them when one of them is like truly fucked up. Like, yeah, when one of them looks like a Morton Joe. And... <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that, that's 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 the one weakness of at least the first Dune novel. 
he does he does make up for it with uh the, the sequel books i'm like I'm, i know i'm gonna come out of this with a huge reading list i want to read uh um that tolstoy story about the guy that killed Hamzat Beg. Yeah, about Haji Murad. I, I was thinking the same thing. You know, I've never read Tolstoy. Re- I've only read, like, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And in theory, I read Moonlight Sonata, but I don't remember how that goes. The man is jealous. <laughs> the music is something. Yeah, we should definitely add that to... Yeah, my, my major exposure to... Yeah, oh, for sure. My major exposure to Russian reading before um, this book club was da- Dostoevsky. I read like half of Crime and Punishment. Oh, I finished that. That, that was kind of interesting. I think it's a little overrated. I do like Notes from Underground or uh, the uh, the Idiot. You went through a Dostoevsky period. It sounds like. Yeah, I I, I read a few of his his works. Like, what was that main thing you responded to? Like the psychology or? Um, I I, I liked his existentialism and the manner in which he um sold his characters mm. which i guess is, is the psychology they, they felt very deep to me yeah yeah deep is is a good like the stuff that they're dealing with the stuff that like everyone kind of not thinks about but like like maybe doesn't want to face or makes like reconsider your assumptions I've yeah, been, I mean, we're, uh, we're already doing so much. We've we've really uh, derailed. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to just to get us back into it? Do you want to do you want to tell the story of the time that Shamil showed his excellent leadership by beating up his mom? Yeah, holy fuck! What a story, <laughs> right? So, and, and this this is in the the middle of the conflict between imperial russia and and the mountaineer uh imam freedom fighters where yeah at this point the chechens are involved in the struggle as well even though they're not as invested in moridism as and as the imamate is right and and they, they got themselves in this horrible awful position where they're either faced with, with continuing to fight on and starving to death or surrender to Russia and face the wrath of a very angry Shamil. Yeah. And like the story because... could have stopped there. Just like the fact that they're, <laughs> that they would like, they're like, shit, do we need to ask permission before we surrender? And the option between dying by the Russians or facing whatever Shamil has planned, if that's already what you're thinking, that says enough about Shamil's kind of leadership. Right. But no, it, 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 it doesn't end there, listeners. <laughs> so <laughs> they they come up with this idea, right, of how do you approach Shamil with this concept of surrender to Russia? Because although Shamil did not like his freedom fighters and his fortresses continuing on these blood feuds, goddamn, did he have a blood feud with Russia? And that's an aspect that I'm excited to get into as we go further in. Is oh, for sure. Once it becomes more personal between um nicholas and shamil right because i mean even now there, there's hints of the tragic fate of shamil's son oh yeah what's that gonna be oh but anyways um so the chechens come up 
was this idea to approach Shamil with surrender, and that is to go to his mother, because Shamil was usually receptive in listening to the woman in his life. Yeah. His mom and his wife were usually, like, uh, influences that stayed his hand or uh, that cooled him off a little bit. He did allow his sister to uh, tear him a new one as well. <laughs> that's true. But that's another story. Yeah. So the Chechen's representatives ask uh, Jamil's mother to intercede on their behalf and to approach him with the idea of allowing for surrender in order to save them from starvation. Um, after putting 200, 300 gold pieces towards her to, in order to make a donation, she uh, not only considers it, but go, goes ahead and acts on that. That detail is so weird to me. I, I don't know how to imagine Shamil's mom. <laughs> well, she, she was she was charitable, right? She was going to give that money to other mountaineers in need, I would imagine. Right, because like, what is she going to do with 300 coins? I, I don't know, 300 pounds of whatever the... I don't know if it's pieces or pounds or... 300 units of money. <laughs> That's a lot of money in, in this time and era and place, right? Enough for her to confront her imam's son. Yeah. Which he he listens, right? Because, you know, I think it comes across that Shamil is usually a pretty calm listener. Right. And he, he does maintain this air of calmness and says, okay... I'm going to go to the mosque to figure this out with Allah and Muhammad, right? And he, he does this for some hours. And, you know, a, a crowd is waiting outside because this is taking a long time, right? So there's tensions outside. Yeah, wasn't it like three his, days or something that he was in the mosque? Yeah, his knives were out there, his murdered fighters waiting for his word as to what is to be done. Finally, he comes out. <laughs> and it was decided that this wouldn't happen, and whoever first brought the idea of surrender to him was going to receive 100 lashes from the whip. We know who this first person that approached him with surrender was. His mom. His poor mother. So his poor mother starts receiving the, these 100 lashes down to 95 lashes, right? So yeah, she gets yeah she gets five lashes, and he like cries over her body. Right, she she faints like, during this process, and that so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fucked. And then he says, um, "Allah in His wisdom," right? Yeah, because like that's the thing about about Shamil is that he's like as a mom, he's a prophet. Like what they say is that. Muhammad is the first prophet, and Shamil is his is Allah's second prophet. Like yes. his access to to God is absolute, or you know, it's the closest thing to holy you could imagine. It is like, for, uh, for a mortal and infallible. That tells you a lot about about like the the intensity of which that which of which not just that he ruled but by which people followed him right yeah but sorry i'm gonna finish up the story so he so so he says that he spoke to Allah once again and yeah he will t- he's allowed to take 
the rest of the 95 lashes. I like the detail where he says to the people that are lashing him, like, if you don't hit me hard enough, I'll I'll kill you. Like, you're going right. to be put to death if you don't hit me hard enough. You're, that was a crazy detail. And it really shows that this, uh, uh, I mean, I mean Shamil is a pre-tactic mind, right? Because, I mean, that event, that story accomplishes two things for him. It, it helps further his uh, Sharia, the practice of the law. It'll yeah. keep his mom out of the way from meddling in the future, <laughs> I think was uh, Leslie's word choices. Yeah. And then it also shows the mercy of Allah. So that's, that's so he's that. So he's a spiritual leader, a politician and a a martinet like all at the same time because after this um no one thinks about retreating or surrendering ever again so i imagine the chechens went back and he's like so what did he say i don't he beat up his mom and then (laughs) took 95 lashes and (laughs) oh so we just die then right yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) we're just gonna starve now so Uh. imagine when he didn't he didn't lash his mom, did he? <laughs> oh, he did five times. Oh, I was afraid. <laughs> I was afraid he'd do that. I'm so sorry. Tell my children I love them. Um, I I think also like taking those lashes. Yeah. So Leslie Blanche, it's interesting. She's like we're talking about that that um that kind of like critical um eye. Like she's not just repeating the legends, but she's trying to analyze them. Right. Uh, because she, t- uh, I think one thing that she brings up a lot about Shamil wasn't just his ability to, not just his knowledge of of the of the Quran of the Sharia, which you know he came up in a madrasa, which is like a place of learning, like it's it's a place of, of monastic um, seclusion and study. Like he was a student, right, of of Islam before he was a faith leader. Um, but she also emphasized that. He had a a skill for theatrics, so like exactly. she's just saying, like he there. must have known how this must have come across and known how to use it to his advantage. And it's it's an interesting kind of um, wrinkle to to sort of great man stuff. Um, like we're talking about, or I guess I <laughs> right, we're talking about. Um, I like how these narratives are are imposed or sometimes self imposed. Like um, and and I think like that applies to like. Um, the the story that uh, communities tell themselves about who they are, but also to to these leaders. Uh, I'll going back to early on when she talks about like the sort of like mythic clash between uh, Nicholas and Shamil. She talks about these uh, about these mythic stories, these tinsel laid uh, portraits of these people. And she wonders if there's not some tinsel in there, in there. Like I'm, I'm mixing metaphors, and I'm not getting the quote exactly. But she's wondering if there's not some tinsel in their metal as well. Right, as 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 though they were. You know, there, there's an awareness to the drama and and the theatrics. Yeah, that it. So, and 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 she gets to like see it all. Like it's you have to be a certain kind of person to captivate people. But part of what being a certain kind of person that captivates people is, is knowing your angles, so to speak. Right. Like being able to captivate people is, is a skill, you know, it's like an, an Odysseus playing the lute kind of thing. Like it's part of what glamour splendor is. It's, it's a, it's a rhetoric, it's a rhetoric of, of, uh, of motives. Mm-hmm. How do you mean? 
so Rhetoric of, of, of Motives is this work from Kenneth Burke, who was a rhetorical theorist. And, and he, he makes the comparison of rhetoric and persuasive acts as one that is very directly tied, directly compared to theater. Oh, so, oh, so like the way that actors might say, like, what's my motivation? Right. Like a kind of um, awareness of these kinds of narratives, uh, you know, and I guess like a simple thing would be like asking, like, why would I lie to you? Uh, I, I guess so. the actual theory itself is more accurately called um, dramatism. Uh, I found the quote, by the way. Let me see. Oh, where did you? Oh, I see it here. It's kind of kind of just alt of the sort of the setting of where people are placed, the actions they take, and awareness of the actions they're able to take, their effects, and how they come across. I found a section here in uh, Leslie Blanche's words about, I guess is applying to kind of these characters that are affecting history, these historically, you know, these uh, great men, uh, you know, scare quotes. This quality of tinsel, of glittering heroics, invests some of the greatest figures, tyrants, heroes, kings. They appeal to popular imagination, they are represented popularly. But is there not perhaps something basically meretricious or tinseled in their nature too? Are they not a judicious rather than accidental mixture of braggadocio and grandeur? Uh, skipping ahead, uh, the historian Gibbon dwells on the dangerous effects of a conscience that slumbers in a mixed state between self-illusion and voluntary fraud. This whole section is like so beautiful. I could just exactly. keep going. I was like, wow. <laughs> exactly. Um, obviously, like Gibbon's quote makes it sound like, you know, it's a little of the darker side, but it's also just a kind of valid way of communicating, especially in political contexts. I mean, it's, it's, a is a strong critique, right? Mm. Yeah. And introducing it so early on makes you, makes you wonder, but like the story of the Shamil, like this idea of, especially of, of self illusion is, and uh, I wish I could had use a different word rather than illusion. You know, if it is faith, then let it be faith. But, you know, he was always that intense. When he was a kid, he threatened to stab himself if it would make his dad stop drinking. Right. And, like, he became imam, but after loyally serving two imams before him. Although, like, I guess the it was kind of a muddle around when Hamzad Beg was assassinated. But he served under his friend, Kazimullah, who became imam... And was the leader of the Caucasian resistance. And it's something that, despite all his intensity, um, Shamil didn't uh, take up because his teacher was against violence. So he stuck to the madrasa and he stuck to, to his learning and, of course, to Fatimat. But eventually he joins Kazimola, um, becomes like his second in command or like his like co uh, general, they, you know, the 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 unfortunate events at Gimri happen, where it's kind of like a I forgot what that uh, I forgot what the place where the Spartans fought Persia, but you know, it's kind of that story where it's like a bottleneck where they are fighting off it? the uh, Thermopylae. Thermopylae, that was it. It's like that same story. It's like this bottleneck where they're fighting off like these, uh, you know, innumerable Russian troops. But there's a goat path that they were able to go down. 
where that quote I brought up earlier about the dogs, if a dog can go there, a Russian soldier can go. Yeah. There's a great, uh, there's great imagery there. The Russians take the town, like destroy, burn it to the ground. Like this town where he and uh, Kazimola had grown up or at least like I had made it their home for a while. I'm, I'm not hundred percent on the details. Um, Shamil barely escapes by jumping over the heads of a bunch of Russian soldiers. Apparently he was famed for being able to jump, what, like a seven foot wall. Damn. <laughs> that's like, that's that kind of like mythical um, stuff where like, it's, it's really interesting where she will like um, point at, where she will point at like, oh, it's so crazy. These not crazy, whatever. It's, it's so interesting. These narratives that we build up and how sometimes she will just repeat the myth and let you like live in the romance of, of the time, or at least the conception of the time that had been built up. Just, just to see and feel the deeds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, cause I, especially I'm sure like the people that were following him, that was the stories he would tell. Because they would say, like, oh, I heard he was descended from Georgian aristocracy. That he was the the son of the, the prince who... Resisted. Defe- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he he goes away. He devote, he he goes away to... So, I, for, I, I don't have... I wasn't able to pull out what that word was um, in time for the record. But the um, the owl... Owl? I'm not sure how to pronounce uh, that. That's the name of those fortresses. Uh, those, I think I... I, think I Owl is that's how I would say it. Yeah, that sounds the most natural to me. Um, but then there's also these smaller huts where Leslie Blanche almost makes it sound appealing. These like r- tiny rock huts, even further up the mountains, that aren't even fully covered in, where wind and rain get in easily. There's a corner for fire where um cattle dung is burned everything that they cook with it has a delicious kind of tart flavor it piques piques my interest yeah i would go for a weekend a week a week a week i could do a week i mean i'm 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 a big fan of goat cheese and yeah the mountains the mountain air would do so much alone as long as it's not raining right or it's not raining i could or snowing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's hiding out there while he heals. And it was, it was kind of nice because this this was a deeply romantic time. With yeah. Him and Fatima too. And that, that was... Mm-hmm. That was nice. Yeah, it was tender. I was like, okay, this, this is like the scene. Like she's telling a story because it's not just like, and he was devoted to his wife and it was so... Like she's giving you these scenes where you can... Uh, at least like one thing to hang on to for understanding that they have a deep bond because like also like Fatima's love for him has to be so great you know for according to how they depict uh, Caucasian society like surviving a battle is already like a little suspicious is a little like what do you do how come you didn't fight to the death yeah why, why are you alive yeah <laughs> which eventually his sister comes and uh and uh, breaks the, off the, the whatever this this little hamlet, this heterotopia they've built up. She comes and interrupts it. She upsets it so much that his wounds open up again. He has to heal a little bit longer, but she tells him off, and he goes back. And he and by then we have this other character, Hamzat Beg, 
who ha- was is from that area, but he was looking to defect to Russia before, like you were saying before, he was convinced by this other guy whose name is, uh, presumably has vowels in it. Uh, <laughs> and I suspect consonants. Um, I can try. He's convinced by this guy to to carry on the resistance against Russia. Largely for the sake of um, overthrowing Kamor Beck. Like the small kingdom that's in Dagestan. Right. It It works out. They overthrow they overthrow her, but he creates a lot of enemies by doing so. Um, I think Including... she killed. I think he kills all of her sons, and eventually kills her. Takes her throne. So one one of the enemies that is made is uh, Haji Murat, which was one of the yeah. adapted sons of a variant queen. What's her name? Some Peke, Bahor the, uh, Peke, something like that. Kamor Peke. That's it. So Haji Murat is able to. Avenge her and the sons. Uh, Hajimura, Wait. sorry. Yeah, he's the adopted yeah, he son he of... Of, uh, of that queen, Kormorbeck, and is able to quite successfully assassinate yeah. Hazmat, Hazmat Beg. So he's he's a rather short-lived imam. Yeah, it's like a few years. He got in, he got in his... Uh, someone else's revenge, but he kind of owned it. Apparently he had some hatred for her. For this Avarian queen, eventually. Yeah. Well, he, he, I, I think he was into the idea of um, glory for his own sake. Yeah. This uh, narrative the whole time, though, uh, Shamil is um, happy to not take the spotlight. She says that um, that the reason why Kazimola and Shamil might have eventually butted heads was simply because... Shamil was a better general than Kazimullah, not because of any kind of ego stuff. Like he was just committed to to his mission or to his understanding of what his duty and for you know <laughs> therefore the duty of everyone else ought to be. Yeah. Although Kazimullah ha- had a nice um quote that really sums up this mirrored Review this world is a carcass, and who he who seeks it is a dog. Oof, that's fine. Yeah, that's badass. I want a T-shirt that says "This world is a carcass," and he who seeks it is a dog. Yeah, you need both. That's that's powerful stuff. So yeah, Kazimola. Yeah, their their disagreements are not in in ethos or worldview. Shamil and Kazimola are like. I I can only imagine they had great conversations. Yeah, uh, Shamil's disagreement was largely one of just wanting to seek more time, right? Right. Yeah, he thought uh, they weren't ready, and eventually, I think where we leave off in the fighting is that Russia inflicts great uh, gains against the uh, Morid cause. Kazimullah dies, Hamzat Beg dies, unrelated, but he dies. And Shamil is like slowly consolidating um, the Caucasus against Russia. After a pretty bad defeat, they are they agree on some terms of peace, but we quickly see that that's not to last. 
No. The, 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 these terms of temporary peace are great, right? Because um, Nicholas is under the impression that this is a long-lasting peace. Like, this, this is a victory, right? Yeah, that they've done it. They finally quelled the this little up, or this little burp in uh, Russia's uh, devouring of, of the Caucasus. So this Nicholas goes all the way from St. Petersburg to what was the capital of Georgia. To... Uh, oh, so it's Tbilisi, but she says Tiflis in the book, so I... Tiflis. I think she did say Tbilisi. Tbilisi? She said Tbilisi at some point? And then yeah, she... Yeah, she, she mentions the George name, but then she reverts back to the Russian oh. naming. And boy, when Tsar Nicholas gets down to Georgia, <laughs> he, is, he is pissed. Yeah. A great introduction, a great villain introduction. <laughs> Like he as he gets there, he like someone is rude or something, and he he demotes them, and that person goes on to kill themselves. Yeah, it was it was when the princes. So he's going in because yeah, all these aristocrats they love to call themselves princes, and like the Georgians see themselves as like little brothers to Tsar Nicholas. But he arrives, and it's clear all are below him and his authority as godlike as you can get in the semi-secular west yep he is the policeman of both europe and the cross right the title that he had uh right that he had self-consciously taken up speaking of these great men who know how who know their angles yeah it's a great this is like um uh, i'm sorry to put this into into gundam terms but it's like in, it's like in Double Zeta Gundam when you finally see Haman with an army. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> or in Zeta, I guess when she appears, I'm like oh shit, like things. <laughs> She's gonna lay down the law. Like we were, we were, we thought we were coasting. It was, it was, it was a hard fought battle before. She's about to hit the fan now. <laughs> um, but I wonder, like she's um, Leslie Blanche is pitching it as this kind of rivalry between these two you know, unstoppable force, immovable object. But Nicholas arrives and what he does is he deputizes the the whatever I don't know I don't know army terms, but the general in charge, the colonel, whatever. He understands that, oh, I'm not gonna be able to micromanage it as well as I would like from St. Petersburg. Right. So he, he has to he has to delegate. Yeah. So I wonder how this narrative is gonna play out. Cause I like this I like that um, you know, the it's in except in very narrow circumstances, like I guess this one kind of, because it is these two, you know, word is law autocratic figures at opposite sides of a political and theocratic understanding. But in terms of the the mechanics of the of the plot, like how how will how will Nicholas make his presence known? I guess we gotta read more to find out. I guess we'll see. <laughs> I am excited though. This has been a really cool really cool book i think it's like beautiful uh, beautifully written and exciting and like there's like a lot of parts that make you laugh that make you think maybe parts will make us cry maybe we can start winding down but i want i do want to leave some room to um to talk about just like our like favorite parts because one thing we didn't talk about that i knew as soon as i read it is like i need to bring this up it was it moved me the most from just like an aesthetic point of view I guess I'll just go if you want to, like, some time to think of your thing, if you want to, or whatever things you want to bring up. But I loved the section with the Cossacks 
it's a small section, but especially talking about about the bells is really really interesting. Like I can pull out the, these um thematic things that she's pointing at. That's also where they talk. She compares the frontier to the American West, this you know colonial settler expansion. Um, but she talks about how the funny a funny line like the, the uh, how Russians love bells. A, a known thing they put their bells everywhere <laughs> but then when i imagine this landscape out of the mountains kind of separated these outposts that are spread around and these the sound of these bells connecting them filling the air with this ringing it sounds so 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 beautiful and then uh leslie like uh makes uh i call her leslie i don't know should i say blanche leslie blanche because I'm only familiar, like she's already my buddy. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, which she brings up uh, how part of what they're doing with that, with the bells, is that, as she puts it, like it helps them imagine the many bells of St. Petersburg that these Cossacks probably will never, had never been to and never would be. It's kind of interesting, you know, um, if we have um shamil as the kind of figure that's gets you as close to god as you can get you know and nicholas is this kind of um you know god emperor of <laughs> of the tundra um it kind of shows how everything is oriented towards saint petersburg in this time like in their political organization and the kind of glamour that these trappings of empire can have and like in these ways that like that something like like bells filling the air can have but at the same time i think just there's something magical i love when i'm out, one of my, like, the greatest gifts that the universe can give me is if i'm outside and i don't realize that there's a wind chime but i do realize the sound those moments are like sublime magical aren't they yeah 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 and the idea of like this like network of bells ringing out just sounds it's just it was just so beautiful to me that's that's I just had to to bring it up. I like that stuff. It reminds me of like uh, as Tsar Nicholas is traveling through Russia. There's this <laughs> reference to him going through many Russias. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. It was a really uh, it did expand my understanding of of the Russian Empire and I guess like Russia today. Like I know that USSR isn't a country. It was a union of Soviet socialist republics. Well, you know what? I think even at this point, mm-hmm. um, it, you kind of mentioned it with, with Dagestan or Chechenia today as being republics that are fairly independent within the Russian Federation. Right. Like, I, I think that's something that we, we forget about when talking about Russia is that it is these multiple republics that are federated mm-hmm. with one another. Yeah. Like, Russia is so big, it's, a, it's absurd to think of it as one thing. There's a Pluricentralism there that is kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, there's something about this story that, like, in terms of breaking down like the Russian identity, whatever that is, the I don't know the the kind of power of empire and like what it means to be a people. Like, it's a really this is a really cool story for breaking breaking that down that's right the the many rushes thing that's a really good thing to bring up plus him traveling also they got that i think that's where the the pushkin 
quote about speed. Yeah. Russians like to go fast because there's so much <laughs> land mass. So, yeah. So, Russians love bells. Russians love go fast. Um, like, it's silly, but it does open the door for um, this very inspiring stuff to the to the spirit, to the imagination. Definitely. I guess one more thing I want to bring up mm-hmm. it is... Besides Fatiman and, and Shamil, there, there are some other cool, um, tender moments be- between these Eastern Khans and these princesses of, of the West. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I think the Khanate city in Crimea, I think, had these, these beautiful fountains mm. and, and uh, memorials to these lost right. princesses of, like, Scotland or... Yeah, who fell in love with a Khan who was so devoted to them. Yeah, he, he built this fountain in her name. Yeah, and like the way that they imagine these women as also being kind of um, like the soft side of Christianity too. Like introducing love, the, their version of love to, uh, to this region. But like you wouldn't know it from the fountain like that's like the story they tell but like i don't know this the, the way they depict the love is is strong on its own and it's also she describes that world as being one where these passions like left like reverberations right like you can't not yeah. feel melancholia or <laughs> or inspiration when you're there yeah yeah leslie blanche like uh yeah honestly a great great writer i don't know why to throw in honestly uh, if I have to admit she's a great writer. <laughs> it's just to underline. It's it's good she's stuff. Damn good. I mean, it's, but, it's it got it got going for a while. Yeah. So um on that on that note, I think you know I'm sure there's more we can talk about. There's a bunch of like little details, and it's just whatever. It's it's a it's a massive work, and it's a massive undertaking that we are going to. <laughs> yeah trying to attempt to podcast this right so next month we're gonna do part two uh next month yeah i mean i guess that's how it's yeah we have two monthly podcasts basically yeah well we'll see how how it plays out i'm thinking it's gonna be a three-parter i i i think i think it's comfortable enough with how busy yeah life can get it's gonna it's kind of it's kind of interesting it's a three-parter where in between each part we're gonna get a one half of Victory Gundam. Hopefully, this will be the Gundam series to <laughs> to be in conversation with with this book. Yeah, because because of, of the weird reframing that Tomino is doing and contextualizing this with <laughs> the Russian and Ukrainian war. Yeah, this was one. I think he said it in Eastern Europe. We'll see. It it kind of is working out. Will it be as such or? Find out next time, listeners. Thank you for listening to part one of Sabres of Paradise. And have a pleasant evening. Mm